Hey guys, this is uh, Pastor Chris Bell, Three Circle Church, and wh wherever you're joining us from today, you may be on a boat, you may be on a trip, you may be somewhere across this country, maybe across this world, but we want to welcome you to the Journeys series, this series that we've been going through all summer long. Journeys. We, we believe that life is one long journey full of smaller journeys. And we also believe that the Bible itself is full of journeys that teach us lessons. God designed trips with God designed lessons. And what we've done so far this summer is we started in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we've been walking through the Bible. Now last week we made the turn into the New Testament and we looked at the temptation of Jesus in the desert. Well, today we're going to take another journey, another journey with Jesus. And this may be the most obvious journey in the Bible that's really a God-designed trip with a God-designed lesson because the whole point of the journey that we're going to look at today, the whole point of this trip that Jesus took his disciples on was to teach them a lesson and inevitably to teach all of us a very important lesson. So today we're going to take a trip from a little town uh, called Bethsaida, and we're going to go to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now that's about a 25-mile walk, but that's what the Bible says the disciples and Jesus did. It's one of the longest trips they ever took. And when they left Bethsaida and they went to Caesarea Philippi, they didn't know that they were going to learn maybe the most important lesson they could ever learn. And we get to take the journey with them today. So I'm not sure how long it took to take a 25-mile walk. Who knows? It may have taken a few days, depending on uh, whether they hung out and took their time or whether they were just trying to get there. The Bible really doesn't tell us. What we do know is that when they got there, still walking around the town and the cities, Jesus began to teach. And today he's going to teach an incredible lesson by asking some incredible questions. So. Welcome to the Journey Series as we take a look at today, the journey that the disciples took with Jesus to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Welcome to the Journey Series. Right, guys, if you will, let's open our Bibles to the book of Mark. That's one of the four Gospels. If you don't have a Bible or a device that you can pull the Scriptures up, then feel free to just look on the screen. We're going to have it there for you. But we're going to go to the book of Mark, chapter 8. And in this incredible Gospel, you know, most scholars believe that Mark 
actually wrote his gospel basically with the apostle Peter telling him what to write. So his source material for this was Peter. So you, a lot of people think that, you know, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that Mark could really be called Peter almost because of the information probably coming from him. So today we're going to look at this incredible place where the disciples went to Caesarea Philippi with Jesus. We're going to begin in verse 27. It says this, Jesus and his disciples went on uh, to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Remember, where had they been? If you look before this in the Bible, you'll see they've, they've been in this little town called Bethsaida. And so today they're going to go to Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Verse 28, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. Now let's dive into this. The first thing we see is that they took this 25 mile walk. We know that by just looking on a map. So it was a long walk and Jesus did this a lot. The disciples walked it most everywhere they went. They spent a lot of time together. And as they did life, the Bible teaches us over and over again that Jesus was teaching them. And that's kind of how it works. I think too many times we think that, that Christianity is inside a church, inside the building, that that's where you learn about God and that's where you teach the best lessons. But actually Jesus taught so much as they did life. The Bible says here, on the way, he asked them this huge question. On the way. Can I just tell you some of the greatest lessons you can learn? And if you're a teacher, like if you're a parent, some of the greatest ways you can teach your kids is not just bringing them to church on Sundays, but as you're on the road, as you're on your journey, in other words. As the disciples were on their journey to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is going to teach them one of his greatest lessons. You know what I've learned as a parent? I have a 16, uh, soon to be 16 year old, a new, newly minted 13 year old and 11 year old daughter. I've learned that some of the best ways I can teach my kids is to teach them while we're living life, while we're playing baseball, while we're playing soccer, while we're going to the beach, while we are on our way to uh, vacation. Uh, as we're grocery shopping, as we're going out to eat around town, all those times don't have to be wasted. And, 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 and you don't have to always create these moments to teach the, the Word of God to your children or even friends or people around you. We can all encourage each other, teach one another, learn from one another as we are on our journey. So the Bible tells us here the disciples and Jesus were on their way. They were on the road and Jesus asked them this important question. He said, who do people say I am? Now it's interesting, first of all, that Jesus wants to begin the conversation with what's the word on the street, in other words? What are people saying about me? See, the disciples uh, weren't just standing right next to Jesus all the time. They were, they were walking around these towns. They were talking to people. They were connecting with people. So uh, Jesus wanted to know, hey, what's everybody saying about me? What's the word on the street about who I am? And then the disciples answer. And isn't it interesting that they give several answers that are close, but not the right answer? Maybe you're John the Baptist. Maybe you're Elijah. Now, let me, let me tell you what is clear here, and, and it's clear in the Bible. People who met Jesus or heard Jesus or saw Jesus do his thing, there was no neutrality. People uh, made decisions about Jesus. They, they made decisions. They reacted to him because he was an explosive presence. And, and what you see is in our culture today, there seems to be this, this really uh, just kind of middle of the road neutrality about Jesus. It's kind of like a meh, you know what I mean? Like, good guy, good person, not really change our life. Uh, that's, that's what we get a lot in our culture. But, but that means that we, we haven't really been exposed to the real Jesus of the Bible. 
the people that met Jesus said some amazing things about him. Just people on the street were saying things like, he's Elijah, he's Moses. He, you know, like he's, he's a version of them or, or those guys have come back. They thought Elijah may have come back since they knew their Old Testament and they knew that Elijah didn't die, that he'd been taken into heaven in a fiery chariot, right? So they thought maybe that's him. So, so they're comparing Jesus to some of the most powerful, explosive, charismatic leaders in Israel's history, prophets, that's what they're saying about him. They're close, but they, they're not saying the right answer. But what I would say to you today is if you, if you have this neutral view of Jesus where it's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, I, I tipped my hat to him, I heard about him my whole life, but you've never believed in him, what you're going to find out today is that Jesus is going to demand that you too make a decision about him. There was no middle-of-the-road neutrality. And in fact, the Bible, if you read the Gospels, including the one that we're looking at today, Mark, and we're going to pull a little bit from Matthew in a minute as well. When the Gospels tell the story about Jesus, it's clear that people reacted to him. It was impossible to not have a reaction when you got around Jesus. So you had some people who were afraid of him. In the Bible, it's clear even the disciples at times were so astounded by his power and his authority, they were afraid. And, and others, when, when he cast out demons, People were afraid of that kind of power. Other people loved him. And so the disciples are all going to love him, except for one, Judas. Uh, the followers of Jesus who really believed in him, they, they loved him. They wanted to die for him. They wanted to give up everything and follow him, and, and they did. They did just that. But then you can see that other people hated Jesus. Other people, the presence of Jesus and the authority and the things he said angered them, offended them. And to the point where eventually they wanted him killed. So there was always a reaction. What you did not get in the Bible is just a, just a middle-of-the-road, weak, meh kind of reaction to Jesus. And I think in our culture today, we often have that middle-of-the-road neutrality with Jesus. And Jesus just doesn't accept that. The real Jesus of the Bible demands, demands that we respond. And we're going to find out now that Jesus will always bring it home. He'll bring it personal. Let's take a look at what happens next. So before we leave these few verses, I want you to notice one other thing. Notice what no one is saying yet. They've compared Jesus to Elijah. They've compared Jesus to John the Baptist. They've compared Jesus to the great prophets of the Old Testament. But there's one thing they haven't grabbed onto yet. They've not said that he's the Messiah. No one is saying that he's the Son of God. No one is saying that he is the promised one of the Old Testament. No one's going there. And the reason is because that was a really, really sacred thing. These, these Jewish people had grown up their whole lives hearing about the future Messiah, the one who would come, the one who would change everything, the promise of the Old Testament. They believed in it, they asked for it, they prayed for it, and no one's willing to put that tag, that franchise tag, if you will, on Jesus. No one's ready to do that. No one's saying that. So in context, when you understand that that all of the answers the disciples had heard with all of their traveling, they'd never heard anyone say that he was the Messiah. That makes what you're about to hear. That makes what Peter is going to say in just a few moments even more powerful. So let's continue. Let's see what's going to happen now. All right, so they're all standing there and they've been answering what they've been hearing people say. And now Jesus is going to, to do what he does, I think, for all of us. I think all humans eventually get this question posed to them and we have to answer it. 
We have to answer this question. So in verse 29, after asking what everyone else is saying about him, Jesus looks at the disciples in verse 29 and he says, But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Now let's just stop there because this, this one verse really has two two sections to it. And here's the first section, Jesus asking the question. And, and I would say that not only did he ask that question to the disciples, I think he asks it for you and for me. I don't know where you are right now, but I know this, you got to answer this question. It is the pivotal, it is the core question for humanity to answer what we believe about Jesus. Do we believe that he is who he said he is in the scriptures? Or do we believe what our culture says? Or do we believe what makes us comfortable? Because to answer in the affirmative that we believe what Jesus said about himself in the Bible, what the scriptures say about him, that changes everything. A.W. Tozer, <clears throat> incredible theologian, said this, what you think when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I think in our culture, what we think is the most important thing about us is how successful we are or how good looking we are or how, how we did on that test or how our job is or the size of our house or how popular and healthy and smart and athletic our kids are, whatever we attach so much importance to all of these other things. But the Bible is clear that the core issue and the core question for all human beings created in the image of God is what we believe about him which means what we believe about Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus, fully God, fully man. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Him? Do you just believe some things about Him because you kind of grew up with a proximity to it? Or have you really placed your hope and faith and belief in the Jesus of the Bible? Are you one of those people that you're kind of you're kind of riding the coattails, if you will, of your grandparents or your parents. Maybe your faith is really just uh, leftovers from their faith. My friend, that is not saving faith, the fact that you just kind of agree with what you grew up with. No, Jesus makes it personal in every person, whether you grew up in a Christian home or not. You're going to have to have a time where you answer the question. Not just your grandparents, not just your parents, not just the friends you grew up with that took you to church. No, the question is posed to you and to me and to the disciples. Who do you say I am? C.S. Lewis uh, basically said that we have some decisions, some options when we uh, talk about Jesus, but the option that's not on the table is to ignore him. Remember I told you, to, to be exposed to the true Jesus of the Bible, you're gonna have to make a decision. And to not decide about Jesus is actually making a decision. C.S. Lewis basically said that when you talk about Jesus, uh, you're going to have to make a decision out of a few options. You could decide that you think Jesus was a liar. So everything he said in the Bible was just a lie because he didn't just claim to be a good guy. He didn't just claim to be a great teacher. He didn't even just claim to be a great prophet. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be a deity, right? And so that means we've got to decide something. And you may come to the conclusion, you go, I think he made it all up. But then you got to ask yourself the question, well, how did he get the disciples to all believe? They're all smart guys. How did he get them to fully believe in him and then ultimately give their lives in horrific fashion? Not just them, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people, maybe thousands of people that gave their lives to him while he was on this earth and believed him and saw him after the resurrection and believed that he is who he says he is. What do you, what do, you do with that? Really hard, really hard to buy that, isn't it? So, so then maybe you go, I don't think he was a liar. I don't think he was a bad guy because if you believe he's a liar, that, that kind of takes our culture's usual perception of Jesus off the table because our culture normally doesn't say Jesus was a bad guy. 
Most people in our culture say, no, Jesus was a good guy, one of the great teachers, one of the great prophets. There were many others like Muhammad and Buddha and, and all of these others, but, but Jesus was a good guy. Jesus was a good prophet. Okay, so most people are not going to say he's a liar. Here's another option. Maybe you say, well, Jesus was crazy. Jesus taught some good things, but he lost his mind, started saying crazy stuff like he was God, got himself killed. Well, you could say that, but then you'd have to go revisit all the, the things that our culture say about Jesus, that he was an incredible teacher. How, how could he say such incredible, astounding things that would change the world forever? How did he, this carpenter from Nazareth, a little hick back road town, how did he end up being the center of history? You can't ignore it. Jesus is the center of human history. It's all wrapped around him, whatever you believe about him. How can you say that guy was crazy? Hard to believe, isn't it? Or... There's another option that C.S. Lewis throws on the table, and you, you could basically call it an invention. You could say Jesus was an invention. He was a real person, but his followers over time retroactively basically invented this Jesus who rose from the dead and who was God, even putting words in his mouth. But once again, then you have to contend with why those very followers that, that, that the invention uh, claim would say, lied about him and made up stories about him, you'd have to answer the question, well, why did they die for him? Look, you'll, you would die for someone who you believed was God, but you wouldn't die for a lie you made up about them. But, but these people did. So then that really, in C.S. Lewis's writings and, and talks, that really leaves one option, that he was telling the truth, that everything Jesus claimed about himself was true. And what Jesus does is he comes to all of us and he says, what do you say about me? Who do you say I am? And that is the big question on the table today. Before we go on one more moment, I would ask you right now, who do you say Jesus is? What do you really believe about Jesus? All right, so let's look at the second part of this verse, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 29. So Jesus asked the question that he asked all of us. And of course, if you know anything about the disciples, you know who raised their hand and answered the question. The Bible says in the second half of verse 29, Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Of course, Peter raised his hand. Listen, guys, Peter's that guy that you grew up with in class that always raised his hand. Peter's always saying something. He's a big mouth. He's always got to be the center of attention. He ends up being an incredible leader as well. He's just that guy. He walks into a room and he sucks all the life out of it. I, I love history and Probably my favorite character in, in American history is Theodore Roosevelt. I think he's one of our greatest presidents, an incredible character. And his daughter, Alice Roosevelt, said about her dad one time, she said, my dad is always going to try to be the, the bride in every wedding and the deceased person at every funeral. In other words, she said, my dad finds a way to be the center of attention. He kind of sucks the life out of every room. That's just who he is. Well, that's kind of how Peter was. Peter had a way of doing that. And on this day, Peter asked a question. Everyone else is quiet because uh, they, they don't really know what to say yet. They're still on their spiritual journey. But Peter's going to say something astounding. He says, you are the Christ. You're the Christ. Now, what we learn from the Bible is that this is actually the right answer. And what Peter is claiming is astounding, not just because of what's on the page. See, we miss some of the context. But, but it's astounding because of who Peter is. See, that word Christ means Messiah. And once again, like the Jewish people that I, that I talked about a few moments ago, Peter grew up a Jew. So in Peter's home as a little boy all the way through his teenage years until he was an adult and out of his house, 
Peter was taught every day about the Messiah, about the promised one. But he was also taught about the living God. He was taught the Ten Commandments. He was taught that, that God is one. There's one God. And, and he was taught the Old Testament, which was revealed and given to the people of God while they lived in lands surrounded by people who were polytheistic, meaning that the people of the world around the Israelites in the Old Testament were by and large people who believed in multiple gods. They attributed a name for gods to almost everything you can imagine. Well, here in the middle of all that was God's people, the Israelites, the Jews. And they were monotheistic, meaning they believed in one God. One God. So Peter, is. this is astounding for him to say, I believe that you are the Messiah. In the book of Matthew, he, Matthew gives us a little more information. He says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. So Peter is saying two things here, clearly with his answer. This is a complete answer. He's saying, I believe you're the Messiah, meaning you are the promised one of the Old Testament. In other words, Peter's saying what we believe at Three Circle Church, that the entire Bible points to Jesus. The only Bible Peter had at the time was the Old Testament. Peter's saying, I believe that the entire Old Testament's pointing at you. You are the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. You're the Christ. And then he speaks to his deity, and you are the son of the living God. You are God. Peter nailed it. Peter got it right. And what's astounding, too, is that no one else was saying this. No one else had stepped out on that limb. No one had gone that far, but Peter was ready to. Peter had gotten there. The information that Peter had seen up until this point had convinced him, had convinced him. So there's two things going on here with Peter. First of all, there's, there's, there's something very powerful and intellectual going on. Peter knew the Bible. He knew his Old Testament, and he had seen the evidence. He had seen the miracles. He had been around Jesus. He had watched him teach. And those things had brought him to what we'll call a mental or intellectual ascent to this decision. But there's more going on than that. That's half of the equation. But there's something else going on. There's something very spiritual going on. Let's continue to take a look at just how powerful what Peter said really was right now. So when we read the Bible, we read the Gospels, uh, there's a reason sometimes we'll pull from all of the Gospels because these are four different people uh, who basically told what they saw. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke went and interviewed a bunch of people. John saw it firsthand. Mark, we already said, probably got his information from firsthand knowledge from Peter. And then you have Matthew, one of the disciples. Well, whenever you tell a story, what you'll find is there's complete agreement among the Gospels. But what you'll find is some of them told things and information that maybe the other one did not. So maybe there's more or less information. Well, as we look at this story, we want to go to Matthew and we want to see something that Matthew told us that Jesus said to Peter when Peter said that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Look at verse 17. Jesus replied to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Now, this is that other part of what I was talking about. What we see going on with Peter here is Peter has made a mental ascent. He's seen the miracles, the information. He's read the Bible. He says, you're the one, you're the Messiah. But something else has to happen. And it's the most crucial thing that happens for those of us who don't just believe things about Jesus intellectually, but we believe them in a saving way, in a relational way, in our hearts and our souls. The thing that makes us Christians, the thing that what we'll call regenerates us, brings us to life. And what does that? The Holy Spirit. It is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. 
Basically what Jesus is saying to Peter is what he would say to all true believers. If you're a Christian today, Jesus would say to you, if you have, like Peter, not just intellectually believed that Jesus is who he says he is, but that you spiritually have, that you've given your life to him, if you've been saved and transformed by Jesus, Jesus would say to you, you didn't do that on your own. That's what he says to Peter. Hey, Peter, you're smart. You're a great leader. You're charismatic. You're loud. You knew the Bible. You came to some good conclusions about me, but, but he says to Peter, Peter, you would have, without the Holy Spirit, Peter, you would have stayed right where everyone else in the culture is. You would have, you would have gotten close. Your, your intuition, your intellect would have gotten you close. You would have said what everyone else is saying, that I'm John the Baptist, that I'm Elijah, that I'm Moses, that I'm a prophet. But without the Holy Spirit, Peter, you could have never said those words. And that's what I believe about myself as a Christian and about all of you. And if you're not a Christian today, what I would say to you is it's more than you just agreeing about some theological principles about Jesus. Being a Christian means that the Holy Spirit has transformed you and that you have given your whole life to Christ. And Jesus says only the God of the universe can do that in a human soul. And so we celebrate that today. We celebrate the supernatural nature of true salvation in the Bible, that only God can do that, that only the Holy Spirit can draw us to the Father, to the Father. That, that is what is happening in this incredible journey we're looking at today. So to help us understand how this works, I, I was thinking about something that happened recently at my house. So I am not a, a big handyman guy. Like I can do yard work and some landscaping and stuff like that, and I can put some things together. But man, if you can get over my head really quickly on stuff like that. And so especially when it comes to electricity, I'm just really nervous about electricity. I don't want to change a light out. I'll change the bulb, not the light, okay? And I've got this really great friend that goes to our church. His name is Johnny. And Johnny's an incredible guy, uh, retired guy, and, and he can just do anything, really. But he's really good at doing uh, electric work. And so recently I had some lights on my back porch area that I needed to change out. No way was I going to do that myself because I would not be able to sleep at night wondering if I was going to burn my house down, right? So my friend Johnny comes over and he's going to help me with it. I love when Johnny comes anyway because I get to talk to him for a while. He's just awesome. But as he's putting the lights in, I you know, we have to turn all the power off, of course, to be safe. He gets it all hooked up. So, so just think about this. From an intellectual standpoint, in the same way that, that you can do with Jesus and, and believe like the people in that culture, he's Elijah, he's Moses, all this stuff. It's all there, right? But with Peter, he believed further. He believed the right things. He was beginning to see that Jesus was the promised one of the Bible, that he was the Messiah of the Old Testament. But to believe in a way that saves, to believe that he is God, to believe those things, that requires something more. So my friend Johnny wired everything up. All the wires were in place. It was all correctly done. It was all safely done. It was all bolted back in. All of the work, if you will, was done, the pragmatic side of it. But, but guess what? The lights could not come on yet. When I hit the switch, nothing came on. Nothing was happening yet. He told me, he said, hey, go turn on the lights. Let's see if they work. And literally, I walked inside and I hit the switch and nothing happened. You want to know why? Because it didn't have power yet. And I remembered, oh yeah, the reason they won't come on is there's no power yet. I had to go back to the breaker box and get the power back on to the switch and to the lights. It required, even though all the wires were right, even though everything was correct, everything was safe to code, it still had to have the power source. 
And that is true of us. Listen, there's a lot of you watching and joining us right now, and maybe you have believed some right things about Jesus. The question is, have you experienced the life change that only the Spirit can do? That's what was happening with Peter here. That's why Jesus said, you didn't do this on your own. You didn't come to that conclusion on your own. That's the spiritual nature of salvation. Have you ever experienced that? You can. You can by truly giving your life to Jesus and watching the Holy Spirit fill you, change you, and transform you. And you say to me, well, how do I know, Chris? How do I know if I've really trusted Jesus as Savior if I've just believed some right things about Him? Well, the same way. How did I know that I had gotten the power to the lights that day? When they came on. When light was coming out of the bulbs, I knew, okay, it's not just the right wiring. There's also power there. You know how it works in the Christian life? Fruit. The light bulb of the Christian life is fruit of the Spirit. See, there will be evidence, and the Bible gives you what that evidence is, there will be evidence that you're really a Christian. There will be fruit hanging on the limbs of your life. Just like the lights coming on on my porch prove that there's power, fruit in your life, good works, good deeds, all of these things the Bible talks about, they don't save you, they just indicate that you have plugged into the power source, that you really are truly a believer. And so today we learned so much from this journey already. Peter gets it right. He says, Jesus is not just Messiah, Son of God. He believes what Jesus said about himself. Have you done that? And if you have, can you see the evidence of that in your life? Because truly being saved by Jesus will always truly change and transform your life. So too often when people talk about this story, they stop when Peter answers Jesus correctly. But we need to go on because the story, the journey continues in Caesarea Philippi. In verse 30, after Peter proclaims him to be the Messiah, after he says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, you're the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies, after he says that, Jesus in verse 30 says, do not tell anyone about this. He warns them. Don't go telling everyone that I'm the Messiah. Now that is so curious to me when I look at that. Like, Why would he not want everybody to know that? And there's a reason. There's a Jewish contextual reason for it. Let me help you understand. Not only the culture, but the, the, the disciples themselves, including Peter you're going to see in a moment, they all, the Jewish people, had a misconception about what the Messiah would come and do and what he would be like. And Jesus did not fit the description uh, that they had in their minds, their misconceptions. See, the Jewish people believed that Messiah would come and he would take over. And it would be a military takeover that he would reinstall the, the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom like David had that, that won all the battles. And they would, he would run their oppressors out of town, right? And he would overtake and overcome. See, they got it half right. What they didn't understand is that Jesus wasn't coming to overtake the Romans and run them out of town and make everything great in Jerusalem again. No, he came to overcome sin and defeat death. And he was going to do it through the cross and through his resurrection. They didn't get all of that. So Jesus knew that if the disciples went and, and, and everyone out there started hearing that he was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, that there would be this uproar that he was going to just take over the Romans and the Romans better watch out and that that was not going to fit into the plan. That's why Jesus tells them to not talk about it. And, and in the same way that the people in Jesus' day had a misconception about who he was going to be, we do as well. The disciples, you're going to see Peter as well, the disciples and that culture around them believed that Messiah would come and when he came, everything would be better and comfortable and easy and, and everything would be a win and everything would be great. 
And Jesus is having to help them understand that, that following him was going to be hard. Following him on this side of the grave, on this side of heaven, was going to be a war. That the battle was just beginning. And you and I need to realize that as well. We have this thing in particular in America known as the prosperity gospel. And it's not the gospel at all. It's like a really bad version of the real thing. Not only bad, not only is it wrong, it's also dangerous. Because if you believe that God, when you are saved in Christ, that everything's going to get easy, you are wrong. And you're in for a stunning surprise in your life. And, and the problem is often you get disappointed in God. God never promised us an easy life on this side of the grave. We're in the in-between, in-between when Jesus came the first time and in-between when he's coming again. And on this side, it's, it's beautiful. There's beautiful things in this life, but it's also an all-out war and an all-out battle. And you need to be prepared for that. So that's why Jesus said, don't start talking like that because everyone thinks wrongly about the Messiah. Jesus needed the disciples and Peter to know, and he wants you and I to know, and you're going to see it in a moment, that the Christian life is not a cakewalk. It's a war. Let's move on and see what happens next. All right, guys, let's read a few more verses here. Let's go to verse 31. So Jesus tells them not to tell everyone about it. Remember, at this point, he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to his 12. And he's telling them, hey, let's keep this quiet about my whole Messiah thing. Verse 31, he then began to teach them. So now let's think about this. A lot of people don't see the connection with these, these scriptures I'm reading you. Too many times we think Caesarea Philippi and him asking the question, who do you say I am? He, we think all that happened over here and then the next thing happened over there. This is all happening in the same moment. It's all the same incident. So after Jesus tells them not to tell everyone what Peter has just proclaimed about him, he says this, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. This is one of the times he lets them know, I'm going to die. And after three days, rise again. Okay? He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now that you understand the context, you can understand those verses that you've probably heard many times better than you ever have before. Now you understand they're all connected. So why did Jesus, right after Peter proclaims him to be the Messiah and he tells him not to tell anyone that, why did he say then you need to know the reality? And he tells him, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. Because he has to now correct their wrong expectations about what the Messiah is going to be and what following the Messiah is going to look like. Think about it. Jesus is correcting an ancient version, basically, of the prosperity gospel. Jesus is telling them, hey, let me tell you what it's really going to be like on this side of the grave. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. And so he's correcting all those wrong expectations. And as he corrects them and tells them, not only is it going to be hard, but I'm going to die. I'm not taking over Rome and Jerusalem and all that, not in the way you thought I was. I'm actually going to die and I'm going to suffer. And Peter... The Bible's clear, rebukes Jesus. So maybe Peter got a little overconfident, right? He's that guy that goes a little too far. You give Peter an inch, he's going to take a mile. So Peter, with this newfound confidence, he just got told that he had received something straight from heaven. Well, he decides that he's going to leverage that again. And he tells Jesus in front of the disciples, hey, you, we're not doing this. You're not going to die. You're wrong. 
And don't we do the same in our culture? See, we have wrong expectations about Jesus too. And when he corrects us like he was doing the disciples, we push back too, don't we? We go, well, well, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't have to really be ra that radical in my faith. I can, I can follow Jesus and still have you know, fun and do whatever I want to do. And, and we kind of want our cake and eat it too, right? But no, no, following Jesus is radical. It's beautiful. It's not that we can't have a full and abundant life, but it's going to include everything He promised. There'll be suffering. There'll be pain. There'll be scary nights, dark moments, times that'll test us to the very edge. And we need to understand that. And like Peter, we often push back. So Peter pushed back and Jesus rebukes Peter in front of His disciples. He says to him, hey, Hey, you are wrong. Don't, don't keep talking to me. And what's amazing, hey, don't miss this. He points out the problem. He says, Peter, now you're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of men. In other words, hey, Peter, your expectations of what a Messiah is, it's all an invention of man. You're the one in your culture and the people. You guys think that I need to take over. You guys want me to take over, make all of you rulers, make Jerusalem a great city again, make the Israelite nation a great nation again. And I, Jesus is saying, you're thinking too low. You're thinking things of man, not the things of God. And you and I can do the same thing. We walk into the Christian life and, and we think it's all about us being comfortable and healthy. And Jesus is like, no, I got way more than that. There's so much more than that to following Jesus. Don't just think about the things of men. Think on the things of God, and that's what, that's what Jesus is trying to teach them in that moment. Now, let's, let's move to, to, to the finale of this incredible journey right now. Okay, to, to kind of land the plane on our journey, if you will, today, or bring the train into the station, let's look at verse 34. So, then he called. Then, remember, he's been talking to his disciples, but he's in Caesarea Philippi, and all this is going on, and he's pretty well known. A crowd is coming around to see what's up. So he calls the crowd this time. So now he switches. His audience now has changed from just the 12 disciples to a crowd. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Do you see that? It was the disciples. Now he brings, hey, you guys come on in, whole crowd. And he says this, if anyone, now he's not just talking to the disciples, he's talking to all humanity, including you and I. And he says this, boy, this is a correction of the expectations right here. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that's it. My friends, that is real Christianity. Jesus is saying to his disciples and then to all of us, literally here, as he pulls the crowd in, he's pulling a crowd in that has all kinds of worldly expectations about what a, a Messiah should be. And you and I have the same thing. And Jesus corrects the expectation for them and for us. He says, hey, it's going to be hard. You may lose everything you have. You may lose your life, but it's going to be totally worth it. It's going to be totally worth it because to know God is the most important thing. The core question is, who do you say God is? And there is more joy in walking with God than you could ever get in this life with success, money, fame, material. None of it can compare to having a relationship that was supernaturally birthed by God Himself, by His Spirit. That's what today is all about. Now, what we need to do, like we do at the end of every good trip, is you got to get home and unpack. So let's unpack today's journey to Caesarea Philippi. So today, what we like to do is unpack after the trip, I'll give you three things real quick. And the first thing is this, the most important question for you to answer in life is what do you believe about Jesus? It's the most important question you can answer 
It's the one you must answer today. And my prayer is that by the Holy Spirit, you will answer with saving faith. And if you're already a Christian, then I want you to, I want you to pour some more concrete over that today by just reaffirming that in your life. Okay? So that is huge. Now, number two thing I want to unpack today is there's a way for you to know if you really believe or if you just believe some right things about God, but you've never truly been saved. And it's the fruit of the Spirit, like the light going on. The fruit of the Spirit in your life is the evidence that you have truly believed upon Jesus. And that is important for you and for me. And then finally, as we unpack our bags, listen, you need to understand this. The Christian life, following Jesus, following Jesus will include suffering, pain, and warfare. It will. You're not going to avoid that. Now, it's going to include a lot of other great things, but it's going, to, it's going to include that. That's going to be a part of the program. Suffering, pain, and warfare is a part of the Christian life. It's a part of the Christian life. And today we're going to add one more. We're not just going to do three. We're going to do number four. And here's the beauty of it. With Christ, with Christ, we can overcome. And we can be victorious in this life because of Jesus. So I hope that today's journey series blessed you, ministered to you. And I hope that like Peter, you will say in the affirmative, I believe Jesus is who he says he is. And if that is true, like turning the lights on when you turn the power on, it'll be evident. Your light will shine. The fruit will be there. And we'll all be able to rejoice in that together. Thanks for joining us today for the Journeys series.